Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. You look at the markets and you look at what is happening in the face of reported slowdown across the world, the Brexit uh, situation in the United States, and many have argued all this is going to end badly, an overstimulated global economy running on central bank fumes. One of those who has argued most vociferously that we are headed for trouble is Kamal Kumar of Kumar Global Strategies. And Kamal, you've got to be shaking your head at the fact that we keep making new highs on the stock markets, and we're starting to see uh, bonds get uh, a little weaker and, and yields go up, and yet uh, everybody's talking about cuts, cuts, cuts from the central banks. Yeah, Mike, I think uh, what is happening today is a, is a steepening of the yield curve, but we have seen the yield curve in the United States flatten before today, and I think we will return to the flattening yield curve. And specifically, you may remember that when I was – on the radio program with you uh, a couple of months ago, there was a caller who was going, who called, wrote to you to say that he would take the other side of my 1% 10-year yield bet. I would really like to take that person on. I think we are headed <laughs> to 1%, and I think we are you going still to think so. 90 basis points. I feel a lot stronger today than even when I was with you the last time. There is no growth in the economy, Mike, and inflation is non-existent. And the central banks have nothing to do but to go on with more and more easing. I think the Federal Reserve is going to not only cut interest rates, but I wouldn't be surprised if we have negative federal funds rates sometime before the end of 2017. So why else? what else should equities do? They keep going up until some point in time you have a crash. I'm sure you, did I yeah. hear you just say negative rates? What do you mean by that? You mean like a negative... Two-year yield, negative no, no, U.S. two-year? The effective federal funds rate, Tom, is about 40 basis points. So in other words, the, instead of the 0 to 25 basis points, which we had before, we have gone to 25 to 50 currently, right. as of December 16th. And effectively, we are at about 40. And I'm saying that 40 goes to zero and goes below zero. That's what I mean. <clears throat> okay, I wanted to make that yeah. uh, clear. The way that came out, I was like, whoa, negative interest rates in the United States. Sri Kumar, it's a big country. It's a diversified country. We are the United States of America. We're not the United States of Europe. Explain how Washington policy affects the West, where Michael McKee is right now. It, it, it's not New York City. It's not Boston, San Francisco. It's a rural mining agriculture west. How did that free lunch affect those people? Very good question, Tom. Uh, the difference here is that if you were to look at an Italian, a French, and a German, even though they have a common currency, you don't have similar interest rates because the country risks are still present and they are very different. What you don't have between Wyoming and California and New York is the kind of <clears throat> divergence that you see in Europe. That's the first part. Second, if you live in, whether you live in Wyoming and, or whether you live in New York, you are still going to suffer the impact of the Federal Reserve's essentially zero interest rate policy. And if you are a retiree in Wyoming, enjoying the, the situation there, 
you still don't have a good retirement income coming. So that's the second way in which you are affected. The third is, again, if you go back and look at what happened with Hurricane Katrina in 2005, the whole country came to the defense of Louisiana as a result of it. And you will what you have today is Wyoming, as also the other states of the United States, work as one in case there is a situation of difficulty anywhere, which is, I think, a very commendable task for the single United States as opposed to the disunited Europe we have. Well, in uh, the United States, uh, we have one monetary policy, but is it working as it should for the entire country? Or are we seeing uh, the real gains go to the folks who live in New York and work uh, in Manhattan? Good question, Mike. I think it is there. I wouldn't say there is a regional difference between Wyoming and New York. I think the difference is between the rich and the poor. And consistently, the policy followed by the Fed since September 2008 has helped you if you are an equity investor, which means you are typically higher income, you're able to take that risk. And has hurt you badly if you are a wage earner or you're at a lower income level in terms of looking for a job. Your working hours have been cut back. But from 2007, you have not had a decent salary increase in real terms. So the difference has been countrywide. Everybody suffers from it. But the difference is more based on income stratification, which is why you see that becoming such an important point in the elections this November. We are not fighting based on regional differences. We are competing based upon how people in different income groups have been differentially rewarded by the Federal Reserve, which shows no sign of changing its policy. Is this a more unequal America than it was before Rubini's QE1, QE2, QE3? His QE forced our Gini coefficient to a more unequal point. The Gini coefficient, the measure of the inequality of income, Tom, I think has been worsening We've since shifted. 2000. It has shifted, it has worsened, and there is no sign it is going to change anytime soon. Again, you can see that in terms of the number of billionaires you had in 2008 compared with today. You can also look at it in terms of the labor force participation rate, which has steadily gone down which means that people at the working level who'd like to get right. a job are not getting it. Michael McKee and I are having fun the other day on Facebook Live. We sit down at 11 a.m. New York time, and we chit-chat over four charts, and one of them was the Taylor Rule. There are two plugins to the Taylor Rule, the neutral real rate, and then a guesstimate of the best unemployment rate. Do we have a clue what the two plugins are to the Taylor Rule? I think people have had plugins, Tom, but if you if you put in both of those, uh, what we do know is you can disagree on what exactly the Taylor rule uh, suggested federal funds rate should be, but it is not 25 to 50 basis points. It, the generally agreed figure is about 1.5% uh, or so for the, for the Taylor rule, a prescribed interest rate, perhaps higher. But we are not going to go there anytime soon, uh, not with this Fed which I don't think has much trust in the Taylor rule, and they're not going to do it. Well, if you're going to do a Taylor rule, you've got to have some sort of estimate for what the neutral rate is. Everybody basically seems to agree that it's come down a whole lot. And kind of the question at this point is, where would you see it now? Do you think it's negative? So a lot of people think it's, it's gone negative. 
Well, the the neutral rate, the sustainable rate is probably somewhere at least 1%, Mike. I'm not going to say that it has gone negative. So I think the neutral rate is positive. It is clearly suggestive of a, of a move up. And if you're looking at also the unemployment, uh, the unemployment figure is 4.9%. But if you combine that with the labor force participation rate, the unemployment situation is actually worse than the the rate alone would suggest. So I would go, I think, putting both together to somewhere between one and one and a half percent, if not higher. I look at where we are and translate this then into the American political process. Secretary Clinton today is going to get support from Senator Sanders. Mr. Trump is going to go to Cleveland and they're looking at an economy which both of them suggest is unacceptable. You've been one of the great voices of this nation in saying, yes, GDP is unacceptable. But is your unacceptable the new normal that the politicians are coming to grips with? I think both of them are coming to grips with that. And I think both of them are also coming together on one part, Tom. Not only that the growth rate is not high enough, it should be much better, which as you know, you and Mike and I have been talking about this for the last six or seven years. It just hasn't changed after the financial crisis. But something more important is taking place. Both candidates are saying that the inequality has weakened. Uh, the inequality has increased, excuse me. So from that viewpoint, the yeah, the equality situation has worsened. And I think both Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side, Donald Trump on the Republican side, all would like to do something about it. They are, their prescriptions are all very different. But it's interesting to me that the income inequality is playing such an important role lot more important role than even the pace of growth mm. of GDP. You mentioned the presidential candidates, and we've talked a lot about the Fed. Bottom line, Sri, what would you do about it? And at the same time, give, give us your advice to your clients. What should they do while they're waiting for well, these people to act? Well, as you wait for the people to act, and you said, what would I say to my clients? What would I say to the investors? I would say, one, the bubble is going to become bigger uh, in the equity side, perhaps for a few more months. But on that side, stay defensive, look at utilities, look at telecom, look at healthcare, be more on the risk off equity rather than risk on. Second, I would say high yield bonds have once again got a renewed uh, pace of life because of all the monetary easing, no expectation of a Fed tightening anytime soon. So if you are a very nimble investor, enjoy some high yield bond returns for the short period of time. Be prepared to jump out quickly before the market happens. Third, there is a lot more juice in the highest grade fixed income, U.S. treasuries, German bunds, U.K. gilt. I have been one of those saying, despite Brexit, the UK gilt yields will go down and they'll go down further. The pound will go down, but so will the UK gilt yield. Sri Kumar with us. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Sri Kumar Global Advisors. One D. Gartman has given us great assistance Uh, in the linkage of economics into finance and investment. And we talked to him about being in cash, not being in cash, and being whipsawed. Dennis, good morning. 
Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me on. All well, my pleasure. My, my deepest sympathies to you. Somebody said to me the other day, what would you do? And I said, well, I'd run a sovereign wealth fund so I don't have to worry about being whipsawed in this market. <laughs> I, I, I know the cheap question is, have you ever seen anything like this? And the answer is, no, we haven't. How do you work day to day trying to, here's the key phrase, folks, not lose money? How are you doing that? Uh, with with a great deal of non-confidence, to be quite honest. The only thing that one can do to, to keep the dangers aside is to make sure that one either has derivatives in place or stop orders in place or options in place and uh, simply does what I think after 40 years of being in the business, I've found the, the only rule of thumb to follow is doing more of that which is working and less of that which is not. Uh, I've looked askance at the at the the temerity of the strength of this bull market, but it's still a bull market. Nonetheless, I've found myself always wanting to sell it short, and sometimes that's that's just been the wrong course of action to have taken. Stocks seem to be breaking out to the upside. Mm -hmm. We are as overbought as I've ever seen, but it has been foolish to even attempt to be on the short side and many of my I and many of my friends have tried that and it's just proven to be wrong within the short call let's extend that timeline out to most of our listeners is being in cash a bad thing in the Gartman no. world no not at all being in cash is sometimes a very wise thing in anybody's world uh, my, my good friend Dougie Cass says it's not a game of Tina there there is no other alternative but it's Cena that cash is the only alternative. And sometimes cash is absolutely the proper place to be. One doesn't have to be fully invested at all times. In fact, I think there are rare times when one is fully invested. Cash is not a bad place to be a lot of times. And this might well be one of those times. If you distrust the, the breakout to the upside, what's wrong with cash? Cash doesn't wilt. Cash doesn't lose value. Cash is still cash. Tom, I'm going to do something that uh, will probably stun you. I'm going to ask about gold. Uh, everybody knows my feelings about that. But we also know your feelings, Dennis, and you, you like to buy it in other currencies, and you've made money yeah. on it. But I, I'm looking at the volatility in the gold market over the last couple of weeks, reflecting yeah. the ups and downs of the psychology of the markets. And, and the question I want to put to you is, I know you buy it, say, in yen, but how do you buy it? Do you buy it as an ETF? Do you buy the physical gold? Do you buy forward contracts? What's the best way to avoid getting completely whipsawed by this kind of volatility when it really is a volatility play at the moment? Well, quite honestly, Mike, the only, the only way that one can reduce the volatility of the gold market is to, use, is to buy gold in non-U.S. dollar terms because, on balance, most people price gold in dollar terms. If the dollar gets strong, gold gets weak. If the dollar gets weak, gold gets stronger. If you want to ameliorate some of that risk, perhaps owning it in terms of yen or euro is the better place to do it. Uh, I, I've always viewed gold as being nothing more than another currency. Uh, and as, a, as an old foreign currency trader, we were always taught from, from the outset to be a buyer of one currency, a seller of another. So I tend to be a buyer of gold in, in euro terms. I tend to be a buyer of gold in yen terms. And honestly, over the course of the past several, actually over the course of the past several years, it's been a far better trade to have been involved in, and it reduces the daily volatility. It reduces the, the abject movements of gold. Now, what's really important to understand is stocks move far more volatilely individually than does gold. A 1% move in gold is, by normal standards, a very large move. A 1% move in almost any stock is relatively minor. 
So gold really, although it looks like it moves a lot in, in relationship to stock prices, it really doesn't move that much at all. But even in other currencies, it's been volatile the last couple of weeks because you know, oh, yeah. and certainly the euro and the yen are nowhere yeah. near where they were at the end of June. Yes, no, no question. In the past several weeks, because of the British referendum, all currencies have become far more volatile. In the foreign currency world, if gold movement is, is of 1% is large compared to a 1% or 2 or 3% movement in stock prices, in the foreign currency world, a movement of a quarter yeah. of a percent one currency to another is very large. And lately, we've seen 1% and 2% movements, especially in the British pound sterling, relative to almost anything else. So, yes, this has been a particularly volatile period of time. I want to talk about Britain in our next section, uh, Dennis Garvin. But right now, I think all of our audience would like you to explain the knock-on effects to American banking of negative interest rates. Negative interest rates clearly are affecting European banking, I would say quietly Japanese uh, banking. The idea that we are removed from them is comedy. How will negative rates affect our banks? Well, first of all, I don't think that we're going to go to negative rates. I hope that we do not go to negative rates because if you go to negative rates, as we've seen in, in Japan and as we're seeing in Europe, the banking system simply almost freezes up. It's, as I like to explain, negative rates have, have the same effect upon banking and lending as uh, uh, absolute zero temperatures have to, upon physics. All the rules seem to change. When you go to negative interest rates, loans are not made. They, they, you would think they would be, but they're not because deposits are not made. And when that happens, the reserve currency or the reserve bank lending circumstance loses its capabilities. You end up getting deflationary circumstances, not inflationary circumstances. You get money seeking other avenues. It's one of the reasons why the dollar has been stronger. I pray that we don't go to negative interest rates here in the United States because I think it would end up causing untold disturbances within the banking system, given that we are still the world's reserve currency. Mike, I love talking to Dennis Gartman. Where else can you mix investment in thermodynamics? I don't know where else you can do that, Mike. <laughs> Maybe out in Wyoming. <laughs> Dennis, the, the the markets are up, it seems, on you know, the, this risk-on feel about additional central bank stimulus, particularly in Japan. But we have seen that over and over and over again. Why? You know, when do people stop doing the same thing, expecting a different result, to sort of paraphrase Einstein? Uh, here, write this down. They'll stop when they stop and not a minute before. At least at this point, uh, Mr. Abe, who had, had found himself in a very uncomfortable political position, finds himself in a much more comfortable political position and says, let's move forward with the three arrows policies that we put forth. They were, they're going to go ahead and spend more money. They're going to go ahead and build more bridges to nowhere. They're probably going to build more railroads to nowhere. They'll put people to work. Will it work over time? Probably not. Will it work in a short period? Yes. Will more money moving into the system before it finds its way into their projects, find its way into the capital markets, find its way into stock prices? Absolutely. So no reason to stand in its way. The Nikkei wants to go higher right now. Believe it. I want to digress here, Dennis, because yesterday I was in a conversation and I mentioned this most interesting thing of the kind of conservative that the new prime minister of the United Kingdom will be. This goes back to the uh, middle 19th century and a one-nation conservatism. I'm going to call it a more liberal conservatism of Mr. Disraeli. And it was beautifully written up in Wikipedia. I was channeling you. You were channeling me. You wrote it up as well. Can Donald Trump be a one-nation conservative? 
I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not a great fan of Mr. Trump, and I'm not sure he can be a one-nation conservative. I, I do actually like what I have read and what I have listened to and heard of Miss May. She seems to be um, at least as – she seems closer to Jack Kempian-like uh, uh, economics than did Mr. Cameron. I'm actually uh, – I'm hoping that this will be a very good prime minister. She's, she was not in favor of separation she was not in favor of the the referendum, and and perhaps that's that's a little in, uh, a, a little difficult position for her to be in. But she says she's going to push through. As she said, Brexit is Brexit. But from what I've read and what I understand, she's going to be a very interesting and, and I think a reasonably conservative for a European politician and somebody that we can deal with, somebody more free market than we have grown accustomed to. But as I said. She's not Jack Kemp, she's not Ronald Reagan, and she's certainly not Maggie Thatcher. Well, do you invest on the belief that Britain will actually go through with the exit? Oh, I think you have to. I, I, I think that that is absolutely a given. I can't imagine that they're going to put themselves through the same trauma and have another referendum. That would seem to me anathema. It's, it's possible, but I would put the odds of it at less than 10% out of a, you know, at 10%. It, it can't be that high. So well, yes, where do you, you have see to go then, through with the process of investing, thinking that this is done. Where do you see then the global economy going as this proceeds along? The general feeling seems to be either bad or muddling, but there's no good out of this. Oh, I think in the end, uh, uh, Mike, I think that there's going to be a great good deal of good coming out of it. I think that this was a vote for independence, a vote for, for uh, self-assurance, a vote for freer markets, a vote for smaller government, and I think in the end, two years, three years, four years down the road, that has to be good. If it's not good, then my whole ideas of, of free, free market economics have to be thrown into the basket case. So I have to believe it's good. In the next two weeks, in the next two months, is it, can it be somewhat confusing? Can it be somewhat disconcerting? Right. Of course it can. It probably shall be. Confusion is always a little disconcerting. But in the end, I think it's obviously a, a step in the right direction. Dennis, if you and I were doing one of our seminars where I was talking to you for an hour, you know, a bunch, yeah. bunch of people, late in the seminar, I'd say something like, what will our pension plans do? I can ask a smart aleck question about Johnson & Johnson or other blue chips priced to perfection. We all know bonds are priced absurdly right now. Yeah. Everybody can agree on that. But yeah. what's the opposite of your trading regime? What do our actuarially assumed serious money what do those people do right now? Well, given that I sit on two endowment committees for two universities, we are involved in exactly that idea. For everybody, every pension fund, every endowment has predicated its, its spending capabilities on 8% returns on equity. And I'm sorry, those, those days are gone. As the Beatles said, those days are gone and I'm not so self-assured. You have to ratchet those down to 4 and 5% which I'm sorry is going to make for great good deals of difficulty, especially for pension funds. People are going to have to get used to the fact that, one, if they think they have a pension fund that's going to pay out X percent, that's going to be ratcheted down dramatically over the course of the next several years. Expectations for return right. have to be taken markedly lower. There can be no question. Then that means to me the only outro for executives incentivized by compensation is transactions in combinations. The M&A business has just got to go wild. Yes, uh, alternatives business is probably going to continue to be quite strong. And whether you like it or not, mm -hmm. money, I guess, is going to make its way continuously into equities. Mm -hmm. It's the only real bet, whether we like it or not. Clearly, five years from now, or certainly ten years from now, interest rates are going to be demonstrably higher than where right. they are at the long end of the curve. And the value of an L1, the, the, 
diminishing value of bond portfolios over the course of the next five or ten years, I think, right. will, be rel- will be shockingly bad. Yeah, Dennis Cartman, thank you so much. And again, we thank you for very clear trade recommendations, good and bad, always published by D. Gartman at the back end of his report. Very few people do that as clearly as Dennis. We do have some Fed speak today with Daniel Tarullo from the Board of Governors speaking in Washington and Jim Bullard of the St. Louis Fed speaking in his hometown. We've heard from Bullard lately. Tarullo hasn't spoken much, but when he does, he usually talks about regulation. We'll see today if uh, he is going to be bringing us any different information on his view of the economy and Fed policy. Joining us now to offer his view on those subjects, Dean Mackey of Point72 Asset Management. He's the chief economist there. And Dean, uh, at this point, everybody's parsing every Fed speech, but nobody seems to think that anything is going to change anytime soon. We were talking at this Rocky Mountain Economic Summit yesterday with a couple of Fed officials who say they shake their heads. They marvel at the idea that people think there will be nothing until 2018 or 2019. Yes, it is a a strange occurrence that the market has completely disregarded Fed tightening uh, for for the next year and a half or so. Um, But I think part of the issue is that the Fed really hasn't at this point, tried to combat that that move. Um, they, you know, they, and I think the Fed was burned in the second quarter when they tried to talk up a rate hike in June and then, and then backed off because of Brexit fears and, and the weak employment reports. So I think they're loath to, to try to do that again, and, and we get into this cycle where the market just keeps pricing out the the Fed tightening. Is this something though that is easily reversible? Another strong month of job creation or uh, strong retail sales, something like that, start to put it back into the markets? Or does Brexit too much overwhelm it? I think it really comes down to the Fed because, you know, I think it's hard to look at the last employment report. I think the GDP report we'll get for Q2 is going to look fine and and get very worried about things. So I think what what really has has led the market to price things out is, uh, for example, the FOMC minutes showed a lot of different worries about many different things at the Fed. And so a good employment report or a strong retail sales report is not going to fix all of those worries. So it really comes down to when the Fed becomes less worried. Dana, it is a remarkable time. And part of that hallmark, and Mike and I have talked this up, is your outrageous call of a unemployment rate below 4%. Even some of our esteemed guests push back against it. Reaffirm how we get to a sub 4% unemployment rate and try to game Chair Yellen's reaction to the Mackey thesis. Yeah, I mean, the, the way we get there is by continuing the 2% growth that we've had in the recovery to date. The unemployment rate's been falling steadily uh, between half and 1% per year, depending on, on which month we're looking at the year-over-year rate. And job growth is running close to 200,000 on average. Uh, if we say anywhere in that range, the unemployment rate's going to keep falling steadily, and we will be below 4% next year. So really, to get the unemployment rate to stabilize, uh, we need job growth to slow very sharply soon. And and there's no sign that that's really happening. Well, do you think that it's going to slow soon? We see mixed signals. We see, you know, some uh, employers reporting jobs hard to get. Uh, we were talking with Bill Dunkelberg, and the number for small businesses is significantly higher this month. But others seem to think that uh, 
it's it's not a question of that at this point. It's just a question of whether or not the uh, investment continues by consumers and businesses. Yeah, I think that we're not yet at the point where there's no workers to hire. You know, it it, it is somewhat harder than it was early in the recovery, uh, for example, when the unemployment rate was at 10%. But there still are workers that that are willing to work. And I think that that's why we're seeing, for example, in the second quarter, we saw 150,000 jobs per month on average. Uh, so there, there's no sign that, that there aren't workers out there. Uh, I think that we are seeing wage gains have to pick up to attract those workers. Uh, but yeah. but, but that's, that is happening. That is happening, which tells me, Dr. Mackey, that we are more ultra-accommodative when Vice Chairman Fisher was ultra-accommodative eight, nine months ago. Are we? We're certainly more accommodative than we were then. Uh, definitely yeah. the, the inflation rate, core inflation is rising, wage rates are rising. So, you know, and the Fed funds rate has gone up only a quarter of a percent since, since then. So I think that uh, we, we certainly are more accommodative now than we were a year ago, for example. I mean, I just look at this, deed and I, I, I say to myself, it, it is a theory without theory. What is the reigning theory at the Fed? Are you, is there something in your Stanford textbooks? That describes what we're seeing. I think the the main theory right now is worry about various things, and that seems to be the the worry shifts from meeting to meeting. What keeps them on hold? Uh, but I, I think mm-hmm. it's it's a they're a very risk averse group right now. So if whether it's China slowing, Brexit fears, uh, one week employment report, you know any of those things will will keep the Fed on hold, and because. You know, we have short-term cycles in economic data. Yeah. Things do happen overseas. You know, it, it seems like there's always something to keep the Fed on hold. Uh, Dean, this goes to the resilient oh. optimism that's been part of your economics, which is almost to a Keynes uh, quote, when the facts change, I change. The idea here of institutions deciding to get done what needs to be done is an underpinning to economic resilience. How will we see that? to get back to better than good GDP in the United States? Well, I don't think that there's any anything policymakers can do quickly to get to boost our 2% growth rate. Uh, the the, you know, we've talked in the past about the demographic forces that are that are weighing on labor force growth. Productivity growth is extremely weak as well. There's really nothing that can be done quickly to make that better. There, there are some longer-term t- things that, that may help, but I, my, my baseline view is that we, we stay in this 2 two to 2.5% two growth rate indefinitely from here. I mean, I, I, I look at where we are in the lower growth rate. But on a relative basis, can we state it's never been wider with Europe and maybe with a troubled United Kingdom? Well, there, certainly there have been times when Europe's been in recession and the U.S. has been growing fine. So, so I don't think that's quite true. But, but it is a significant gap that you're pointing out. Um, and part of it is the demographics are, are much worse in Europe uh, than in the U.S. Uh, now the Brexit, of course, is, is likely to weigh on U.K. growth, at least for some time, until it becomes more clear what exactly is going to be worked out there. Well, speaking of demographics, one of the arguments that's being made, uh, one of the criticisms of central banks and particularly the Fed is that we are an aging society and as the baby boomers retire, they're going to be living off their savings and they get no money because interest rates are so low, so they don't have uh, additional money to spend and that retards the economy. So the argument goes, the Fed would be better off at this point raising rates because keeping rates low to stimulate spending isn't working. Try the other way. 
Yeah, I'm not a believer that raising rates is going to boost growth because of that effect, that, that the retirees have more money to spend. You know, I think it's it's worth highlighting that even the re- many of the retirees do hold some equities, so they are benefiting from the close to record highs in the stock market. So I don't I don't believe in that reverse causation. There certainly are some some people affected negatively by the low rates, but on average, I do think low rates are a boost to growth. Aren't they at this point pretty much running out of gas because? The Fed is keeping rates extraordinarily low, and they have for seven years, and we can't get above 2%, and we can't get inflation. Well, I, I don't think that's quite fair. Inflation's gone from below 1% on the core basis to 1.6%. So it is gradually rising. Wage inflation is picking up. So it's not as though the easy policy isn't doing anything. It's just that it takes some time in an economy like this to, to raise inflation. I'm, I'm quite comfortable saying the core inflation will be at 2% over the next year or so. So what does that do to nominal GDP? I just did the one-year moving average of nominal GDP, and it's gone from 4.1% down to 3-point-some percent, which for everybody, all of our candidates, and even Dean Mackey is subpar. Do we get nominal back above 4%? I think if the Fed succeeds in getting inflation back to 2%, we should see nominal GDP in the 4 to 4.5% range. But it probably doesn't go much above that. Can, at least for, for the next few years. The money question, Dean, is can an institution manage inflation? Do you have a confidence that they can actually drive inflation higher? I, I think they can. And they, we, we have seen it as, as the labor market's tightened, as, as the economy's grown, as slack has been reduced. We have seen inflation rising. So I think that process will continue. Uh, it doesn't doesn't happen rapidly, but as as slack is, gets removed, inflation does tend to rise. Well, we are seeing wages rise a little bit. We're seeing some evidence of prices rising. But when you say we're going to see inflation start to move higher and get to 2%, does it keep going? In other words, is the Fed going to be behind the curve? I think that they're very willing to have an overshoot of the 2% target. And, you know, different members express this in different ways. Um, you know, some of them say it's fine to overshoot for, for somewhat because we've been under target for a while, so we can be over target for a while. I think they will do that. So I think they will see inflation get up to 2.5% before before this cycle's done. Once it gets above 2.5%, then I think they start getting more yeah. nervous. You know, maybe that's the overshoot. Dean Mackey, thank you so much with 072. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.